Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today in the book of Colossians with a message entitled, Christ, Supreme in Creation. So let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians 1, 15 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've often wondered what someone must think when they're investigating the Christian faith for the very first time. You know, where they ask, do I actually begin? Look, there's so many different denominations out there, and then they move to, you know, all those things that Christians are supposed to have taught in the past and believed and maybe don't anymore. I mean, is it possible to even get a handle on this thing called Christianity? You know, if I'm explaining this phenomenon to the person who's seeking, I like to say, look, start with the person of Jesus. I mean, after all, it's Christianity. The faith is about Jesus Christ. So if you can, try not to ask what Christians believe about until you start asking what can be known about Jesus. And with that in mind, you know, I know that there are variant teachings about Jesus, and there were from the beginning. You know, as we continue in our study of Colossians, and we get to chapter 2, we're going to find Paul warning the Christian church in that city. And he's going to say, see to it that no one deludes you with plausible arguments. And then later, see to it that you're not taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And so as every Christian should know, from the very beginning of the Christian faith, there were false teachers, counterfeit gospels, even upstart leaders teaching their own doctrines, seeing how they can make a name for themselves, and creating their own brand and version of the Christian faith. And it was confusing then, and it is now. In some ways, this is kind of normal. In some ways, it's demonic. Let me explain. You know, I once pastored a very fast-growing church and suddenly found that people who paid no attention to me before now suddenly saw me as important, and for whatever reason, either they started attacking me or became somehow attached to me. You know, any successful movement creates rivalry and people who are looking for a place under the sun. Other people want in on it. They want to be the star of the show. And that explains, as the Christian faith is exploding all over the world, why so many people wanted to create their unique message within it. But other factors explain this phenomenon as well, and that's the demonic. Jesus taught in the parable of the wheat and the weeds that the evil one had come, and he had planted disruptive plants among the wheat to severely limit the size of the harvest. Now, what's to be done about false teachers? Well, clearly, one of the things that one must do to contradict them is to actually teach the true faith. And as I have said, we've got to start with Jesus. When we start with Jesus, two things are important. One, we need to emphasize what Jesus actually taught. And two, we need to emphasize who Jesus actually was. Get familiar with the authentic Jesus, and then and only then are we in a place to evaluate every wind of doctrine that crosses our paths. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is about the authentic Jesus. Most likely, this passage was an ancient Christian hymn, and from my best understanding of this passage, the hymn has two sections. Section 1, or the first stanza, takes us from verses 15 to 17, and then stanza 2 takes us from verses 18 to 20. Section 1 of the hymn is about Christ's preeminence or his supremacy over all things, and then in section 2, or in Colossians 1, 18 to 20, we're going to read about the Son's supremacy over the salvation of the lost. Well, we're going to read the entire hymn, both sections, even though for today, we're only going to be studying the first section of this hymn. 
But let's just listen and hear what the ancient Christians sang when they sang together. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Would you please notice that there's a symmetry between these two sections of the hymn. In both sections of the hymn, Christ is referred to as the firstborn. In both sections, we hear the words, in heaven and on earth. And in both sections, we also hear the words, for in him. That means that all things occur in Jesus the Son. And so there's a symmetry between the two parts, both stressing the central person of Jesus. But the first section speaks about creation, and the second about redemption or the salvation of the lost. And if scholars are right, this is actually an ancient hymn that Christians sang. The question is, who wrote it? Well, it seems very likely to me that Paul is the author of the hymn. He's both a great theologian, but he's also a hymn writer because he knows that when Christians sing their doctrines, they remember them. And so everyone in the ancient church was singing this. Well, notice clearly that the church is taught to sing her doctrines. And if I'm right in this, after beginning the book of Colossians by telling them how he's praying for them, Paul now begins in earnest. You're being tempted by all manner of aberrant teachings. And where do we start? Well, let's start by talking about what you've been trained to sing already. That song that teaches you about the identity of Jesus. So let's begin by examining verse 17a, the first truth we learn about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. You know, at first blush, that statement seems very much like Genesis 1:27, which says that God created man in his own image. Now, when Genesis tells us that, it doesn't mean that in all things we're exactly like God. You know, in some ways we are remarkably like God, yet in other ways we're not. For one, God is creator we also can create. So in that way, we're like God. But in other ways, we're not like God at all. See, God is spirit, we're flesh. And so the image of God in human beings is both true and real, but it's not complete and comprehensive. And that's basic Christian teaching about the nature of our humanity. But the Bible also teaches us that we're fallen. The image has become marred and twisted and distorted and made into evil distortions. Now get back to Colossians, where we're told that Jesus is the image of God. And if that's all that Colossians taught, we would rightly say that Jesus is the ideal man, the image of God that was not distorted by sin. Now, if that's all that Colossians said, that would still be saying a lot. You know, Peter witnessed that, and he would write about it. 1 Peter 2.22 records Peter saying about Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Look, everyone sins, but there's one exception, Jesus. And so in one sense, it's right and correct to say he's the ideal man. He's the man that never sinned, the man in which the image of God was never marred. But there is more here in what Paul writes about Jesus as the ideal man. 
Notice that Paul says something significant. He's the image, notice it here, of the invisible God. Remember I had said that in some ways we are like God, in that we know about righteousness and reason and creativity, you know, all those things. But in other ways, we're unlike God. Remember I said that one of the ways that we're unlike God is that God is spirit and that God is invisible. Ah. But of Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. That means that while it is true that humans are only partially in the image of God, Jesus, as this text now clearly shows us, is fully in the image of God. And that's why Jesus would say, and here I'm quoting John 14, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus would say, I and the Father are one. And Paul, lest we misunderstand, doesn't say Jesus is in the image of God. Rather, he says he is the image of the invisible God. All that's true of the Father is also true of him. And then Paul adds something else to that. Look at the last part of verse 17, the firstborn of all creation. You know, when modern people read the word firstborn, we logically assume that firstborn means someone who is born first. But in the Old Testament, a firstborn had a very special status. A firstborn inherited the father's property, his wealth, everything the father had. And because it was so, sometimes the word firstborn was a title, a status, a position, and didn't necessarily refer at all to the birth order of a person. So you want an example of that? Well, listen to what God says to King David in Psalm 89, 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So clearly, in a literal sense, David isn't the firstborn king. And there were a lot of kings before him. But calling him the firstborn is to say that David has preeminence, supremacy over all the kings of the earth. And that's how firstborn came to be used. And when Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he says Jesus is given a place in creation in which he rules over all. What's significant about that? One of the problems in Colossae was syncretism, adding something to Jesus. Well, why would you add something inferior to what is superior. There is nothing that happens apart from the hand of God. He rules everything. That's the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's annual scripture calendar. The 2024 In All Things scripture calendar reminds us every month in beautiful images, scripture, and inspirational thoughts that God is ever-present. It also contains exclusive quotes from Dr. John Newfeld's new book, available in the new year. It's our hope that this wall calendar resource, complete with a one-year Bible reading plan, will encourage you and help you maintain a spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading in the new year. As part of our commitment to providing biblical resources without barrier, we're offering this calendar for free just for the asking. To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In our day, there's a form of so-called Christianity which is called progressive Christianity. Either doctrines are added to the faith by subsequent generations, as in the case of Romanism, or modern-day philosophies are being married to the Christian faith, as in the case of liberal Christianity. 
But all of this belies a central truth. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. That in and of itself, that revelation of the true identity of Jesus is utterly transforming. Who marries or adds something inferior to that which is superior? Who adds to perfection? That would be madness. That misunderstands what the one true Jesus is. And Paul's still not done. Remember, he's quoting a hymn that ancient Christians would sing. So let's quote the first part of verse 16. For by him all things were created. Now that's quite a statement. Who has ever said that about any other human being, or for that matter, any other prophet, any other religious teacher, philosophical professor, scientist, political leader? No, all of these people are created, but this one claims the title of creator of all things. Now, what do we make of that? Well, first of all, let's go back to the Old or the First Testament. And the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so it's never in doubt who created. God did. And furthermore, the opening chapters of Genesis makes it very clear that God spoke the world into being. And furthermore, in Psalm 33, 8 and 9, we read, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And so it's logical then to ask, well then, who actually created the world? Was it the Father or was it the Son? Now in the original Greek language, the words for in him have been variously translated. You know that I'm using the ESV translation and it does say for in him. Other translations will say, for by him. And the idea here is that the Father did create, but that he created by the Son, or through the Son, or in the Son. The Father planned the creation. He spoke the word of creation, but it was the Son who effected the Father's command and brought the creation into being. The Father created through the agency of the Son. And if that thought is not staggering enough, let's add another word to it. It says that through the Son, all things were created. That is, there's not one part of the creation that was not brought into being other than through the Son. But even in that, Paul's not done. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now, that first category is heaven and on earth. And when we think of earth, we should immediately think of the natural world. And the more scientists discover about the earth, the more complexity they find. I mean, for me, the fascinating part of the modern scientific enterprise is that whether one looks out at the immensity of the universe and considers the grandeur of what's there from the macro perspective, or whether one looks at the complexity of an individual cell gazing at the micro perspective, the complexity and the design of all that we see is altogether staggering. And according to Paul, we need to see Jesus as the one who brought such complexity, such interdependence, such wisdom, and such beauty into being. This is the product of his creative genius. But Paul also mentions the things in heaven, so it's possible that he means merely the physical universe, but context suggests that Paul means, at the very least, the invisible realm, or at the most, the realm of the dwelling place of God. Whatever exists, says Paul, has but one source for its existence. Now, in order to expand on this further, Paul speaks of the things that are visible and the things that are invisible. You know, in the invisible realm, he surely means the realm of the angelic. 
You know, the next line clarifies that. So let's continue to read verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And notice Paul speaks about four things. Thrones, as we know, refers to the place of governance, where power is projected and brought to bear on others. See, there is, according to the Bible, a great unseen realm. And this unseen realm projects power into this seen realm. You might remember in Genesis 28 that Jacob fell asleep in a place that came to be known as Bethel, where he saw a ladder and angels ascending and descending. Those who were ascending had completed their assignments and were reporting back to God, and those descending were given new assignments. And when Paul in Colossians speaks of thrones and dominions, he undoubtedly speaks of those angelic beings that are given authority by God to exercise dominion in a given area on God's behalf. But on the other hand, we also know that there are demons, rebellious angels, who also seek to exercise dominion on behalf of their Lord, who is Satan, who is the prince of darkness. And if we read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he speaks of a battle or a struggle which he says is not with flesh and blood, but rather with rulers and with authorities, with cosmic powers over this present darkness. And because this warfare in the heavenlies is so real, it's felt in the human or even in the Christian experience. Christians are urged to take up arms, to put on the whole armor of God, to withstand the onslaught on the day of evil. And so whether among the angels or among the demons, there are thrones and dominions. There are also rulers which speak of various jurisdictions over which they reign. And finally, there are authorities. And I hope you're noticing that all these powerful descriptions of rulers in the unseen or in the invisible realm. But says Paul, make no mistake that whatever exists was created by Christ. And Paul's still not done. Let's read now for the first time all of verse 16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's a statement. And they were created not just through him, but we have already heard, and now we also again hear, that they were created for him, that is to serve him. That is, whatever authority they have, it's limited in sphere, but he, Jesus, not just rules them all, but he has the power to insist that all things serve his purposes. And of course, if we allow ourselves, we'd spend some time here speaking about how even Satan himself will, in spite of his rebellion, unwillingly play into Christ's hands, for Christ rules him as well. Now stop and think what this must have meant for the Colossian Christians. Remember, I've said that the first weapon against false teaching and heresy is a correct understanding of the person and the nature of Jesus. And as we continue to read through Colossians, one of the temptations, one of the confusing false theologies was the teaching that included the worship of angels. But think, if only the Christians who became confused by this had thought the matter through and had always at each moment made their starting point the identity of Jesus, they would have laughed at such a preposterous suggestion. I mean, why would I worship the created angels instead of the creator of the angels? My Jesus created all things, even as he created me. Why would I trade the worship of the creature for the worship of the creator? Good theology about Jesus is a preventative to error. 
But there's still more, verse 17, which speaks of Christ Jesus supreme over the creation. Read verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the first part of that sentence, that he is before all things, well, that fits. He's the creator. His existence precedes all things. The eternally existent one of logical necessity is the one who is before all things. And therefore, the honor that is due the eternally existent Jesus must also be greater than the honor that is due anything else in this world. Jesus is the final judge of philosophies and worldviews. He's the judge of all the world of ideas, the world of religions, the world of thoughts, and the things that men and women honor. He is before all things. Well, to hold anything as the chief of our loves and affections over Jesus, well, that's idolatry. Let me repeat that. To love anything more than Christ is a monstrous evil and the ultimate idolatry. All religions of the world are then judged by what they make of Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Bear it in mind. But notice also the second half of the sentence. In him all things hold together. And what does that mean? To put quite simply, in understandable language, everything that exists not only exists in the first place because of him, but it continues to exist to this very day because of him. All that exists exists because he wills that it would continue to do so. Were he to withdraw his permission, it would immediately cease. Why is that important for the Colossians? Well, the reason is the same as why it's important for us. Understand who Jesus is, and then and only then will the rest of the world and the world of ideas make sense. Thanks for your message, John. You know, it seems to me that we need to begin with a foundational understanding of who Jesus is. And if we don't have that, uh, we're susceptible to all kinds of falseness or falsehoods and, and heresy in what we believe about the Bible. Yeah, it is true because, I mean, first of all, the Bible gives us the clear picture of who Jesus is. So I want to start with that and say that's, in fact, what we're looking at. And in the end, when we see the supremacy of Christ and then we see that his word is contained in the Bible, then we recognize this is the wisdom of Christ. And once we settle on the supremacy of Christ, we settle also that all the things he teaches us come out of his wisdom. And therefore, we stop relying on our own wisdom, but actually relying on him. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. It's never too early to start planning your travels for the new year and our April 2024 cruise is filling up faster than we'd imagined. You won't want to miss this incredible opportunity to vacation and be under the direct teaching of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld. Laugh and be encouraged with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and share moments of musical inspiration with special guest Amanda Stock. From April 5th to the 14th, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean, including Miami, Porta Plata, St. John's, and more. For more information, to download the itinerary or to sign up, just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 
2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are used and all related costs are covered by participants.